finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a reboot, I guess? We did this podcast before. We did several episodes. Um, It was great, but now they're a loss of time. You'll never listen to them. We might find them at some point and put them up, but right now they're... They're in the vaults. They're in the vaults. The time vaults. I was trying to remember, what is the word... What's the word for stuff that happened before the flood? Pre-diluvian. Anti-diluvian. Anti-diluvian. Whatever. Doesn't matter. They're they're not here. This is a new version of the podcast. Uh, For those who don't know, for some reason, this is a podcast that we do because we like to read and we like to talk about reading and I don't have a lot of people to talk to about this stuff. Uh, so I sort of shanghaied my mom into doing a podcast with me. Andrea is my mom. She's also a librarian. Now, in this current incarnation of the podcast, we're going to talk about two short stories per episode. We're each going to pick one. And then afterwards, we're going to launch into a sort of more general discussion about what we're reading and what we're thinking about and stuff like that. Sounds good. So I guess we'll start off by talking about the story that I picked which was The Dungeon Master by Sam Lipsight. I picked this one because I had read it, I think, like, right when it was first published. And that was right as I was starting college. 2010. 2010. I think it's specifically September of 2010. So it would have been come out just a few weeks into my first semester of my freshman year. I had been playing Dungeons & Dragons since I was in high school. And... I don't know, something about this spoke to me. I don't know how well I think it actually holds up at this point. It falls... Well, let me summarize it, I guess. Okay. It's about a dungeon master, which for those who don't know, is the person who runs a game of Dungeons & Dragons. They come up with a scenario, they control all the characters and monsters and enemies and whatever that aren't controlled by the player. And in this case, the dungeon master is a high school senior who's playing with a bunch of younger kids... And he's really sadistic and brutal, and his game is very gritty, and the characters die constantly in very stupid and grotesque ways. And it just kind of charts a little segment of time of this narrator's relationship with the Dungeon Master, going through to the end of them playing together, and then a little bit afterwards. And everybody is a huge asshole. So (laughs) this falls very much into this sort of genre of literature, where everyone is a toxic asshole and you're meant to be repulsed by these characters and you're especially meant to be repulsed by the reflections of yourself you see in them. And I think at this point, like, I, this style of writing has definitely been getting a much-needed reevaluation in recent years. I think it was kind of like the dominant American literary form for a while. And to me, at least, when I was younger and probably dumber... I definitely thought this was, like, the highest and noblest thing you could do as a writer to craft these very intricate portraits of awful characters. I think that's true. I mean, we mentioned this in our previous podcast where we talked about the unredeemable characters and novelists like Jonathan Franzen and even Thomas Pynchon to a certain degree Mm -hmm. who show us sort of the worst parts of humanity by reflecting it in these characters that are meant to represent 
us and our values as modern society. I didn't see that story as this way. I saw it as sort of sort of like a little bubble that reflected the suburban culture. And I think that's a big issue for young people because a lot of them were raised in the suburbs. And there's this sort of two halves of the suburban experience. There's the gritty underside, which we talked about with books like Stephen King's It, where it's dangerous and difficult and hard to be a kid. And the other side, which is the parental idealized version of what kind of lifestyle you're giving your child by letting them live in the suburbs. And you can kind of see that because you see the Dungeon Master's gritty sort of death-fueled kind of out-of-control gaming that he's running compared to the school-sanctioned game that is mentioned in the story and some of the kids want to get into that, you know, safe, wholesome kind of positive game that the school is running as compared to this sort of edgy, gritty, like almost punishment type of game that the Dungeon Master is running. Yeah. Okay. So the thing that I actually still really like about this, and I think it's part of the reason why I liked it so much when it was first published, is specifically the milieu that it's set in. So there's no shortage, I think, of literature and cinema and even music that's like about the dark side of the suburbs but even when artists do that it's still this very it's almost always this very affluent version of the suburbs which is like as you know this will come with no surprise to you as a kid who grew up in the suburbs like that wasn't the version that i knew like nobody that i was friends with was rich like some of them were more well-off than others, but there's definitely this sort of scrappier, more economically precarious version of the suburbs where it's like, you don't live in the city, but you also don't live in a nice house. You live in an apartment or like a tiny row home. And this was like a really solid portrait of that in a way that I don't think you see a lot. I, I There's definitely, as somebody who's had and does have ambitions of being a writer, I think it can be discouraging sometimes. Because so much, like, quote-unquote serious literature is just about rich people. Like, just... And even when it's not trying to be about rich people, it's often about people that are... Who I would consider to be rich. And then when they do try to write about poor people, it's almost always this, like, oppressively bleak version of poverty. Which, like, is, I suppose, a valuable thing to illustrate, but it's often not the reality for people that do live in poverty or near poverty. Like, it's like, people's lives can be bad and not just be an endless hellhole. I don't think this story is about that. No, it's not. But I'm saying that's, like, where it's set. It's set in clearly a shittier version of the suburbs than you would see in, like, you know, some kind of, ooh, there's a shadow behind the white picket fences type story. Like, this is a version of the suburbs where people, like, hang out at the reservoir. But I think this is about... The characters are trying to, on different levels and in different ways, connect to each other. Yeah. And I think, like, the problem with the Dungeon Master is he has a hard time connecting with people because the experiences in his life are so much different than the other... Like you said about the children who live in the town. Yeah. And for him to connect, he needs to sort of bully them in a way that he can boss them around, that he can fit these people into his world, which is this world of Dungeons and Dragons that he creates. Because he kind of lives in that world 
the whole time while the other kids only live in the world when they're playing the game and i think for them it's more of a game and for the dungeon master it's his escape it's just like escapism of how he processes and deals with his life yeah well okay so i did really like and i still like the way that this story handles this sort of alienation from self and community that you can get living in these areas and like that felt really real and the way that the story deals with the idea that a lot of times especially when you're younger your friends aren't necessarily people that you like the most they're not even necessarily people you like at all they're just the people that are being are willing to be around you and sometimes you don't like them and sometimes they don't like each other and it can be really stressful sometimes hanging out with your friends when your friends are like that and i think this is a solid example of that i also think that like if we going back to what you were saying about trying to connect with people by forcing them into this reality and the dungeon master living in that reality if you want to buy into the idea that the dungeon master is a tragic figure then i think his tragic downfall comes from the fact that he can't separate the game from reality like they break up because he forces into the game the reality of Cherninsky's dead sister he mocks him with a real life bad thing that happened to him which takes it over the edge beyond the bad things he was making happen to the characters in the game and is what ultimately explodes the group but i think that's right because at one point in the story he actually says but as the dungeon master hopes to teach us the world is not a decent place to live in and I think that sort of shows his, like, reflection. I think he's also a little bit jealous of the sort of normality of the other kids in the group and how they, in his mind, seem more adjusted. But I think it's sort of another one of those things about the sort of suburban culture where everyone thinks that everybody else is doing better because they can't really see the other problems. Like you can see the other boys have adjustment problems and they have anxiety and they're also trying to fit into the culture of their middle school and getting ready for more adult relationships. Sure, yeah. I I think one of the like saddest parts of the story actually, and it's like really understated and the story doesn't call this out as being sad and it might just be me projecting like, some of my own experiences onto it, but the moment where the dungeon master realizes that the narrator and Cherninsky talk about the campaign when he's not around and that they hang out without him and he then proceeds to make fun of them for it. Right. It's like, that's heartbreaking to me because you know that they don't hang out with him outside of the game. He is the dungeon master. He's never identified as anything else but the dungeon master because that's all he is to these kids. I think it's also telling that he doesn't actually even have a really have a name. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, and then also he's sort of in a kind of like a traditional British novel, he refers to the other characters by their last name. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of, they dehumanize him as the dungeon master and he emasculates and dehumanizes them by only using their last names. Yeah. So to, to talk about, to talk about, running a tabletop role-playing game for a second. There's this idea, and I think it comes specifically from Gary Gygax's original writing on Dungeons & Dragons, specifically from the first edition Dungeon Master, Dungeon Master's Guide, that the DM is like a godhead figure. They're separate from the players. And we see now in more, in newer games, uh, this idea is pushed that the Dungeon Master is just another player. 
They're just a player who has different responsibilities from the other player. But earlier games very much set the dungeon master aside. And so to tell a story about a guy who is sort of in a friend group but is alienated from him and then to make him the dungeon master is kind of brilliant. Yeah, I think so. It, like, works perfectly for the, you know, his actual position in the group being reflected by his position in the game. I think I'm, I agree with that. And I think one of the themes that I got from the story is that the story is about, uh, in a way, monsters. Mm -hmm. Monsters and weirdos and how you feel about yourself. The Dungeon Master doesn't consider himself a monster or a fearful character, but the other characters in the story are afraid of him. Yeah. And it comes to, I mean, mildly, like, the revolution is at the one point where the one character who's been killed 29 times says he doesn't want to die anymore. And that's sort of the way that they decide that they, they want to stand up to the dungeon master. But even after that, when he goes to the high school and he starts playing in the school sanction game, it's too tame, it's too mild, it's too upbeat and positive. And he, he wanted this sort of experience where he was fighting in a group and he wanted this sort of mainstream kind of game. But then when he got to that game, he was like, this isn't weird enough for me. So either he was tainted by the dungeon master to now expect a certain amount of like savagery in his games, or he never really wanted that sort of embracing that sort of standard of what a suburban lifestyle would be like. Yeah, I think the the narrator's reaction to playing in the school sanctioned game is where I start to maybe have a problem with this story. I think, you know, when I was saying, oh we're rightfully reevaluating this genre of literature that exists to provide portraits of t grotesque and toxic assholes. I think a lot of times when you say something like that to people like, oh, this might not be good, their reaction is always like, oh, well, shouldn't we have portraits of these guys? And, oh, they don't want you to like these dudes is always the defense. But I think the risk is that in attempting to humanize these figures, you end up sort of romanticizing their toxicity and i think that his reaction like oh this is lame and bad and maybe the other game is better and it's clear very much the other game is not better the other game is like one dude one sadist torturing a bunch of kids but it's like i think the story falls a little bit too much into romanticizing the dungeon master while also very accurately portraying how much of an asshole he is and those two things are sort of at odds Think about think about a novel like Hess's Beneath the Wheel. Sure. Which is about this sort of culture of boys at school. Yeah. And it's kind of, if this was a novel, it would be similar to that. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of about, and, and they sort of have this kind of Stockholm syndrome where even though they know that this bully is awful, they care about this bully. Sure. And I think it's the same way. I don't think it's about... Like, when I was reading on the internet about this story, a lot of people said it was about, like, nerd culture and the D&D &D kind of um, subculture. But I don't think that's what it's about. No. I think it's more about, like, relationships and defense mechanisms and how kids can learn to deal with problems in a setting. They sort of make up this sort of culture for themselves to adjust to things in the world. Are they going to turn out to be adults and be like characters in Jonathan Franzen novels? Probably. 
because they're all pretty awful at this point. Yeah, I don't think that the story is trying to say anything about Dungeons and Dragons. It's using Dungeons and Dragons as a convenient framework and as a sort of like metaphor for these characters' relationships. Like, he doesn't necessarily need to be a dungeon master. He just needs to be some figure in this friendship who willingly sets himself apart and above the other characters. But I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with making the characters like that sympathetic or or exploring their relationships together. I'm just saying sometimes you run the risk of having an asshole read this story and go, ah, actually, it's a good thing that I'm an asshole. It I makes the game better and my friends like me more. I thought while I was reading this, I kept thinking about two things. The first thing I kept thinking about was the plot line in Stranger Things where the young boys are obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. But then I also kept thinking about the song from Weezer, My Name is Jonah. And I kind of felt like as I was reading that and thinking about these two things, I thought it was sort of taking these age-old themes of like, alienation and accommodation and sort of pushing it through like the filter of nerd culture, which I think is becoming a bigger trend in literature now than it was in the past. Because, I mean, you're seeing books like Ready Player One where the whole concept of the book takes place in this pop culture, nerd cultural world. I think more people... I think people nowadays can relate to more than in the 70s and the 80s i had not thought about this before you said this thing just now about nerd culture but i think you could almost read this story as a commentary on the evolution of nerd culture where you have the dungeon masters game which represents this older form of nerd culture that was kind of isolated and it was about these people that felt disaffected and detached clumping together and it was a little grittier and grosser and it was in a basement and you got stabbed in the kidneys by a halfling, which then ultimately dies out and is supplanted by this much safer, more accessible, more easily marketable version that is represented by the school game where everyone has a dragon to ride and everything is clean and nice and owned by Disney. Well, let me ask you, do you think the story holds up from when you read it? I think it holds up, but I think now I'm just a little bit more wary of stories about characters like this that are specifically told in this kind of tone. I really like the conversation. I like the dialogue that was in the story and the way that it was written. It seemed very natural and it sort of seemed very honest. It didn't seem contrived at all. And I thought that was one of my favorite parts of this story. It definitely felt pretty real to me. I think like a lot of writing about teenagers or kids kind of either it downplays how shitty they are or it makes them too smart. Like these guys were like a-holes who were constantly ragging on each other, but they weren't like super witty a-holes who were throwing out these great one-liners. They were just kind of saying dumb shit like earlier in the story they talk about like, oh, I heard the dungeon master went to the loony bin i heard he went to bergen pines and then later on when he makes a joke about them sucking each other's dick the one kid just says oh we did it bergen pines style which doesn't make any sense it's just him bringing up something he knows is going to hurt the dungeon master in a really clumsy way that is like exactly how a teenager would do that i think so i mean i i thought the funniest part that really made me laugh out loud was the 
term elf beaver when they were talking <laughs> about that, which is not something you want to hear your mom say, but I just thought that that was like, that was like perfect dialogue. And it sort of really said how like early teenagers or preteens would talk to each other because it's something that they think sounds really dirty. Oh yeah, absolutely. I kind of, that was really honest and really sort of authentic. And I think it really made the story seem more like it was about these kids. I would have named the story that instead of the Dungeon Elf Beaver? <laughs> yes. I don't think you... it would have gotten published in the New Yorker. Exactly. <laughs> the only thing that I didn't think was especially realistic about the dialogue was they did not talk enough about dicks and balls. Well, I don't think it was an actual transcript from the d and I'm just saying but... it would have been full of that shit. Also, yep. none of them made any Monty Python references. Or but, did they? Was there? No, I don't think there was. I think that's sort of a defense mechanism that young boys use. So I think it was sort of nodded to, but it didn't continue. Oh, no, no. I think it, I think it did a good job with that. No, I agree. I, I still like this story a lot. And I feel like I've been maybe a little unnecessarily hard on it. I haven't read any of his other work. Neither have I. And I don't know if he just hasn't written that sort of... He's written at least one... Capstone work that sort of represents his style, or... No, I don't think he has. I know he's written at least one novel, and I've heard him compared to Philip Roth, which is, like, maybe not necessarily a good thing nowadays, but if he wrote something, if he wrote more stuff like this, I feel like I would have heard about it and would have read it. Yeah. I mean, this was, like, an interesting thing where this was... Nobody really remembers this story eight years after the fact, except for me, I think, but... This was like a little bit of a thing for a bit because it came out and people were like passing this around and talking about it like, yo, there was a story in the New Yorker about Dungeons and Dragons and they they talk about it by name and it's literally called the Dungeon Master and it has the phrase Elf Beaver in it. And like people, I don't think the reaction was super positive at the time because it really doesn't paint a very nice portrait of people who play Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's a fairly realistic portrait of a kind of person. And a kind of group that plays D&D. Yeah, like, I think I read this because, like, they talked about it on Boing Boing or something. I wasn't, like, religiously following The New Yorker at the time. No. No. Well, I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't really... I mean, it sort of reminded me a little of, like, Juno Diaz, which is another writer that you can't really talk about right now. But yeah. I, I, I like that sort of blending of, like pop culture and sort of traditional modern writing aesthetics oh yeah i i think that's a totally fair comparison do we have anything more to say about the dungeon master i don't think so oh i will say this this is not necessarily about the dungeon master but i read that story and i really really liked it when i was 18 and it i inspired me to write that i was like okay i'm gonna write a screenplay that is a real-time portrait of a D&D session so it's like a three hour long real time movie and I wrote so much of that and kept going back and rewriting it and I I still bear a little bit of like resentment towards this story for convincing me that something so stupid was a good enough idea to waste all that time on I'm sure there's a lots of D&D inspired fiction out there oh I'm sure there just is just waiting for a blog to post it to yeah yeah alright let's move on uh, to the story you picked so, from one weirdo to another? Sure. So, my choice for this episode was A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor, which was written in 1953. And this is kind of like her most popular story. It's the most reprinted. It's the most studied. It's the most discussed. 
And it's written in a style that's considered Southern Gothic, which we talked about before the podcast about what is Southern Gothic. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this story writing that has an element of the weird or disturbing in it, which if you know me, is kind of a theme of what I pick for my reading. Yeah, I think what I was starting to say, and then you told me to stop and say it on the podcast, was that I kind of see Southern Gothic, and I might be wrong about this, as like the way that traditional Gothic literature, I think, is kind of a reaction to like romanticism. I think that Southern Gothic literature is sort of a reaction to like these more idealized portraits of the South, like uh, Mark Twain type stuff. It's like, no, actually, the South is bad. And everybody is a paranoid, racist murderer, and they live in crumbling houses covered in vines. Yep, I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, there's lots of weird stuff going on in the South, according to Flannery O'Connor. I think one of the reasons why I was thinking about this is because you were talking about this interest that you had in learning and listening to a podcast, which was called... Hmm? The podcast that you were listening to that was about the Bible. Oh, the Apocrypals. Shout out to the Apocrypals. It's about two non-believers reading the Bible but not trying to be assholes about it. It's very good. Well, I started to think about Flannery O'Connor because she was Catholic and she identified so intensely with her Catholic upbringing. But she also had this component where she felt alienated. She had a terminal illness. She had a long-term illness. And she was sort of excluded from the activities of the people around her because she was bedridden at some point and she was sick. And so she took her sort of component of her Catholic faith and her sort of disenfranchised feeling about living in the South, and she combined those into short stories that sort of reflected the, like, weird and grotesque parts of Southern culture. Yeah, this story in particular is super Catholic. Yeah, and I think that it's sort of... It sums up the sort of her her faith and her life experiences. I mean, she she died at an early age. She was 39 years old and she died of complications from her lupus, her medical illness that she had. So she was sort of um, almost like a shut-in where she didn't interact a lot with the world. So most of her writing is sort of reflection of her internal things that she dealt with and mostly dealt with her coming to grips with her um, mortality and how the Catholic Church had certain beliefs that she kind of she was on the fence about or she was conflicted about and kind of things like that and they were always all of her stories have a morality aspect and it's interesting because like this story which is the story of a family that is going to go on a vacation so it's the parents and the two children and their sort of overbearing grandmother and who, a secret cat and a, and a secret cat, which is always so Catholic. So they decide to go on a vacation and they're going to go to Tennessee. And meanwhile, in the background, be aware that there's this escaped convict, which in the South, there are, there's tons of stories like about escaped convicts. And sure. there's a whole Faulkner genre. There's probably life. more escaped convicts than there are just regular convicts. I think so. So they're driving along and the mother, who's very religious and very ethical and she likes to control people, she starts to sort of wear on the father about this idea of going to visit this old mansion where there's a secret panel. This kind of part is a little bit like sketchy. She's trying to trick them into going to visit her childhood house and she manipulates 
the children into getting excited about a secret treasure so that they'll be very annoying and convince the dad to take a detour to go look at this house. Right. But meanwhile, in the subplot is there's this escape murderer on the loose and... The misfit. The misfit. Is there's... The band is not named after this character, is it? I don't think so. But it makes me think about the misfits. Yeah, that's all I could think of. And then I kind of kept imagining him looking like Glenn Danzig. Exactly. (laughs) He's got no shirt and then he puts on the Hawaiian shirt. Yes. So there's a fight in the car. There's some sort of agitation and the father slams on the brakes and by this sort of comedy of errors, the cat gets out, he scares the father, the father crashes the car, they go into a ditch, and the car is damaged. So, at the same time... And he throws the cat against a tree, which made me very upset. Yes. I do not like cats getting hurt. Spoiler <laughs> alert, the cat survives. Yeah. So, they think that they're being rescued because a car shows up, and out comes this gang... Of murderers, and one of whom is the misfit. Mm-hmm. And so there's an argument that ensues, and the grandmother tries to. And this is the part that's often debated in the story: is the grandmother trying to plead for the family or plead for herself? But the misfit, who has his own sort of problems going on, and he ends up, he and his gang end up murdering the entire family. And at the end of the story, the grandmother who is pleading for her life, she also gets murdered. And then the misfit says, you know, she she kind of deserved it because she needed to be put in, put in her place. Yeah, I think that reading this story, I sympathize with the grandmother more than you're supposed to. I always hated the grandmother since the multiple times in different points in my life where I have read this story. Because the grandmother symbolizes this sort of overbearing sort of pressurized concept of morality and ethics. And I think the misfit is, he's hes not the free thinker, but he's the opposite of the grandmother because he is living his life good or bad and he doesn't care. So he's living on the impulse of his life, which I think is what Flannery O'Connor wanted to do. Sure. I guess the way that I kind of viewed the grandmother was that she's like, she just wants somebody to listen to her talk. Like, she's just kind of, she's just kind of detached and alienated in her. Son doesn't give a shit about what she has to say, and the kids don't give a shit about what she has to say, and she's not really connected with anybody else, and she has this, converse, this like, kind of meaningless conversation with the guy at the barbecue place, but it's like, yeah, she just wants somebody to listen to her. And so she's forced to, like, not forced, but she ends up choosing to do these kind of shitty and manipulative things to get people to listen to her and do what she wants to say. And, like, I don't know, I just, she's, like, a ultimately a kind of powerless figure throughout the entirety of the story, so much so that she just ends up getting shot at the end. I kind of, like, I, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. Is it about grace and forgiveness, where the grandmother is transformed from this sharp harpy character into sort of a redeemed character who's also trying to mm. save the misfit? Or is it about her being selfish and trying to save herself? See, I guess I just didn't see her as, like, a harpy character. She just seems kind of, like, hapless to me. Like, she's just, she tries to tell stories and anecdotes to people and nobody laughs at them and, like... But I think that's that's the whole genesis. That's the whole nut of the story. Who's the monster? Mm-hmm. Is it the sort of 
family who doesn't care about the grandmother? Is it the terrible harpy grandmother? It's the murderer, might be the monster. Is might he? be the murderer, maybe. He seems the guy who murders two children. I, he might be a he might be the monster. The misfit doesn't murder. No, he the gets his friend to do it. He gets his friend to do it. But he's the most honest. He's living his life in the most honest way. There's no subterfuge. He's the misfit, and he is just doing what he wants. He's sort of. He's the hedonist. He's driving along the highway. He's living his life. He's picking up people. He's doing whatever he wants. So he's the most free of any kind of moral or ethical obligations. I guess it's hard for me to read a character like that as anything but a posturing phony. Like, because that's just how, that's how murderers are. They never mean the things that they're saying. None of them actually have these high ideals. They're just cruel dickheads. And that's how I read The Misfit as like, he's just as fake as the grandmother. It's two two phonies, but one of them has a gun. But I think it's like her acts of like aggression and violence and evilness are like daily small little bites. What are her acts of aggression and evilness? I mean, she controls the family. They wanted to go to Florida. She convinced them to go to Tennessee. They go to Tennessee. And then she convinces them to go to this house. And it turns out the house is in a different state. But she never says anything. I guess it's like... I guess because we only really get insight into her internal life. Like, she's the only one that we really see any of their thoughts. And the rest of them are just kind of like shouting and grumbling the entire time. It's like... Well, who cares if those people go to Florida or not? Right. <laughs> they suck. But she also, I think she also set this sort of air, like atmosphere of terror. Because the whole time she's threatening this family with this fear that the misfit is coming, the misfit is coming. And finally he shows up. First of all, he's not as dangerous looking. In my mind, when I'm reading the story, I picture him like, Glenn Danzig, he's wearing motorcycle boots and a black shirt, and he's yeah, you know, he's, he's a tough guy. He's not and wearing he shows a shirt. Up, he's like a nerdy, dumpy guy, and at some point he doesn't even have a shirt on, but he has yeah. these sort of glasses, and you know, then you're like, oh, okay. In my mind, he sort of looks like Truman Capote without a shirt on. <laughs> like that's not terrifying, but he's not terrifying in his stature. He's terrifying in his actions. Yeah. Okay. So the thing that I that stuck out to me is like. The grandmother is obsessed with death. She brings up the misfit in the beginning. She dresses nice specifically because she's worried that she might die in a car crash. Like, she's deeply concerned with death. And then it comes for her. Like, it turns out she's right. Like, the misfit is there. They do all die. They do get in a car accident. And I don't know what that means. I don't know. But, I mean, the story is sort of about unperfect people flawed people it's the same thing it's a variant on this unredeemable character because but it's easy to understand that you're supposed to hate the misfit but the question is are you supposed to hate the grandmother oh i don't think you're supposed to hate the misfit i think you're supposed to hate the grandmother and think that the misfit is like right but he's dangerous like i i just don't necessarily agree with the premise set up by the story But I think the problem that I have with the grandmother is she's this type of sort of moral religious character who, instead of being a good Christian woman who cares and is loving and is praising God, she's the kind of religious person that calls upon God when she needs something or she wants to prove a point. Sure. I mean, I feel like that is like a conflict 
that's especially sort of relevant to me being raised Catholic. Yeah. No, I understand why you don't like the grandmother. Absolutely. I understand that. And like, yeah, no, I, 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 I totally get where the story is coming from where it's like, yeah, no, she's like has this performative faith and she's only really, I mean, at least the misfit seems to think that she only really reaches out to him and tries to offer him this grace because she's trying to save her own skin at the end. But like, who wouldn't be is kind of my point. Like, I feel like this story expects way too much of people that, and it's like, I, I don't really understand why the grandmother is signaled out among anyone else in the world. But I think at the very end, it proves the point that she might not be the best version of a Christian because she doesn't ask God to help her. She just starts to sort of like kind of melt down and he kind of is like, I've had enough for you. And he just ends up shooting her. Yeah. And then I think he, he doesn't even really sort of repent, but he does feel bad because at the end of the story, when his friend is laughing, he says, don't laugh because it's not funny. Yeah. But like, so he's not a thrill killer. He's just programmed to be a bad person. Yeah, it's interesting to think about them because I had read this story before. And I think I had liked the grandmother less at that point. I don't know why this time I was like, you know, she ain't so bad. I mean, she's a racist. (laughs) But she's a racist in that very like patronizing way that I think a lot of people were racist at the time. Not to excuse it, but like the two times she does bring up black people, she uses them as props. Um, it's like, oh, I want to paint a picture of this little black kid. And then the other one is she uses a black guy as a punchline to her anecdote about the watermelon that says eat on it, which nobody laughs at. But I think for early Southern Gothic, part of the sort of disturbing and the evil part that is exposed in the Southern Gothic is the, the Southern kind of relationship with slavery and the history of that in their culture yeah i I think racism is a big part of the southern gothic literature because it is a big part of the disturbing part of the southern culture sure yeah southern gothic literature is just regular gothic literature but the ghost is slavery yeah and i think that's exactly it did you like the story yeah no i liked it i just feel like the story i think wants me to believe that the grandmother is like especially awful person whereas like i kind of in in my mind the the morality is almost flipped whereas i feel like the grandmother is just a person living her life in the world she's i think she's a very human character and flannery o'connor maybe does too good a job of humanizing her to the point where i kind of start to like her and i see the misfit as being representative of the church and religious pedagogues who just want to tear you the fuck down for being a normal ass person who has weaknesses and fears and kind of does some shitty stuff from time to time. And you got you have to go to hell for that and get shot. And it's like, he, he to me, is like a representation of like kind of a, you know, fire and brimstone type pr- judgmental preacher. I think more than the grandmother, the misfit represents the phoniness of religion. That's a good take. I think the whole story, I mean, in my mind, the question is always, who's the monster? I mean, it could be any of the characters in the story. And to get back to the family, I think it's purposeful on O'Connor's point where she does not flesh out the characters of the father and the mother. Yeah. Because they're sort of like just sort of the 
supporting cast of this story, which is pretty much the grandmother and the misfit. And the cat who survives and misfit takes the cat. Pity Singh. So he ends up with, and that almost has like a religious connotation, even the name of the cat. Sure, so, yeah. So. Yeah, the mother is like literally asleep for almost the entire story. Yeah. And then the baby just kind of casually dies. But you know what I think? I think they're kind of like the red shirts. They're sure. not meant to be fully fleshed out characters. They're meant to sort of, because the act of killing an entire family is more disturbing than just killing the grandmother. I think the way that the, the, yes, absolutely. I think the way that the deaths are handled is especially disturbing. I think them like leading Bailey, her son, away and him dying out of view, which allows her to, for a while at least, maintain this illusion that he's still alive and he's just off where they can't see him is really kind of heartbreaking and super fucked up. And then, like, once you and the grandmother realize, like, oh, no, he just she just shot that dude and took his shirt. And then they start to lead the kids and the baby and the mom away. You're just like, I think, like, like I said, the grandmother is powerless. She's powerless in this in this situation just as much as she was powerless in the earlier situation. And she tries to gain some power in this situation and save her life in the same way that she does throughout the rest of the story by using her words and religion to try and manipulate people. And it just, in the end, doesn't work on this guy. Well, a lot of the discussion about this story comes to the plot point where the grandmother actually physically touches the misfit. Sure. And a lot of people say that at that point is when the misfit decides that he's going to kill her. That he does not want to be touched by her and he does not want to be redeemed and that's why he ends up shooting her himself because mm-hmm. that's the only family member that he actually ends up shooting. Yeah, yeah. So I would I would almost want to read a story that's told from the point of view of the misfit. I would want to I mean he goes into why he was in jail and how he escaped, but I think in my mind I would want to know I would want to read the story from his point of view. Like, that there should be two stories, a companion to each other, from the grandmother and from the misfit. Like, that would be almost like an interesting writing experience to know, like, what was inside the misfit's head. But I think that, like, that kind of defeats the purpose of the misfit. It's like, he, he basically says to the grandmother, like, hey, I'm empty. I don't remember why I did, if and if or why I did all these awful things. I'm just this kind of raw id of murderous intent and judgment like i mean i think he's supposed to be god like i i don't think flannery o'connor has a terribly high opinion of god and i think the misfit is her representation of what god is like so i i don't think you really could tell a story from his perspective that's probably true i mean he's a very old testament type of god i think so but i think she was more the type of catholic that was old testament she wasn't the sort of preaching about Jesus, good deeds kind of thing. I think she was kind of like, your judgment coming in heaven and dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah. And that's I'm going to turn your house into a garbage dump full of screech owls. Or which is a thing that God friends do a lot in the Old Testament for some reason. I think in her case it would be peacocks. Sure, She was yeah. obsessed with peacocks. Well, that was good. Do you want to talk about the story you're picking next, or do you want to leave that to the end? Oh, yeah. I think we should announce that now. Let me double check that I get the, both of these names right. Okay, so the story I'm picking is called Flower Mercy Needle Chain by Yoon Ha Lee. 
Uh, it's totally available online. It was published by Lightspeed Magazine. Is it a science fiction? Uh, it's like science fiction, science fantasy, little, little new weird maybe. Oh, that sounds interesting. Not not quite as weird as some other new weird stuff. And I might actually reread the story and t- say that oh no, that that's wrong. It doesn't fit that at all. Um, but yeah, it's about a magic gun. Ah, so mine is a completely different take on that. My choice is Goodbye Brother by John Cheever, which is from his Pulitzer Prize winning collected short stories. What do you mean when you say that's a completely different take on that? It's kind. It's it has nothing to do. It's kind of like a traditional story. It's about a relationship, oh, okay. a family relationship. It's about sort of the experience of dealing with your siblings, and it's kind. It's typical John Cheever. Same thing. There, it's almost like there's a story, and then there's an element of like something that's unhinged. The uh, the official podcast cat is ruffling a paper bag. Over in the corner, in case you heard that. He has not a strong opinion about John Cheever. Okay, so when you said it's a completely different take on that, you meant on the picking a story, not... I'm picking a story. Because for a second, I thought you had some wild take about how that's a different take on the idea of magic gun. And I was like, I don't remember there being a magic gun. Well, there is a weapon in it. Sure, there's a <laughs> weapon, absolutely. This but is another... I mean, we'll talk about it on the podcast, but this is another story that's steeped in... Old time religion. I think so. Yes. I mean, there's a very specific way, which will no spoilers. We'll talk about it in the next episode. Exactly. Okay. Cool. So that should be interesting. Mm-hmm. So we will now move on to the other part of the podcast that's not about short stories, and maybe won't also won't be about religion. We'll see. Well, I think this is a good segment because one of the things I want to talk about is I had just finished reading The Shape of Water, the novel that Guillermo del Toro and Daniel Krauss had written as a companion to the movie. Mm-hmm. So I saw the movie. We saw, Everyone saw the movie, and everyone fell in love with the movie. Yep. And I recently finished the novel. So Daniel Krauss is a writer, and he has had some success with young adult novels. And apparently how he connected to del Toro was that he was one of the writers on the Troll Hunters Movie, series, whatever. Can I? Okay. So, I like I like Troll Hunters. I watched all three seasons of it. There is a part in the third season where a character goes in a bathtub. And, like, there's something with Del Toro in bathtubs. And I haven't been able to parse out exactly what it is. But I just wanted to say that. I, I saw that and I was immediately like, yo, what is up with this dude in bathtubs? Monsters in bathtubs, specifically. So, this novel is not a novelization of the movie, and it is not a novelization, a serialization or novelization of the screenplay. It's a story that's similar, and there's elements of the movie in it. So, it's sort of like the 2001 A Space Odyssey novel. Right. But I think what's interesting is it, it either comes out concurrently to wherever, when the movie is released, or it comes out afterwards. So it sort of delves more into like the backstory and the motivations of some of the lesser characters. It's interesting in here in, is that the relationship with Zelda and I can't even think of her name right now. Um, Eliza. Yes, Eliza. Like the, the relationship between Zelda and Eliza is sort of minimalized. And most of the story takes place from the point of view of Strickland. 
It tells the story of how he ended up in the Amazon and why he was looking for the creature. It sort of tells the backstory of his time when he was in the army and his time in Korea and sort of gives a little bit more of how he became the character that he is in the movie. And also I think it's interesting is there's a lot more about his wife in the store in the novel than in the movie. In the movie she's sort of like this put upon traditional housewife. And then in the story in the book, you can see she's sort of in more independent and she's growing independent. And even at the time that Strickland is in the Amazon, she starts to enjoy her life without him. Well, I mean, who wouldn't? He's fucking awful. So at one point, she even goes out and she gets a secret job. Okay. As a secretary in an ad agency where Giles goes to try to sell his artwork. And she starts to form a relationship with him, which is not in the movie. And no. it sort of shows her trying to break away from him. And even at the end of the of this novel, she tries to leave him. So while he is having his meltdown with Hofstadter and there's all these problems where he's trying to find the creature, she is simultaneously trying to leave him. She takes the children and she leaves. She has this job and she's become more independent and... As he's disintegrating, she's building herself up as, like, a strong, independent woman. Does that continue throughout this story? Is yeah. It, okay. It's interesting because, like, the movie, to me, is very much, like, about societal outcasts and misfits. Whereas it sounds like the book is, is more... I don't know. I think the movie, to me, is more about, like, people finding each other and coming together and building this community... Whereas it sounds like the movie's more about somebody escaping a toxic situation. Like, I guess it's almost drawing a thematic parallel between the specimen and Strickler's... Or Strickland? Strickland. Strickler is the name of a character from Troll Hunters. Um, Strickland's wife. Yeah, and I think, I mean, well, the parts that are still the same is his sort of disintegration and his like obsession with Eliza and his obsession with the monster and then the whole component of Hofstadter him being a spy and Giles and his dealing with his homosexuality in an environment where you know it's not encouraged and he has all these problems it's a little bit more than not encouraged yes well that's sort of highlighted in the book because you get more of his backstory you learn about his like um, growing up in the South and his relationship with his father. So sort of the component, like when you're watching the movie, they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, Giles had his complicated relationship with his father. That's already in the character, but the story sort of adds more of like flesh to that sort of backstory, which I think is nice. I also thought it was really, there was two parts that I thought were really interesting. The one was the candy in the story, in the movie, the candy is just something that he eats and that's sort of his affectation is eat the candy. Yeah. In the book, he picks up the candy in Brazil and it's sort of this really off-brand knockoff candy with lots of chemicals and a really toxic smell. And it's And there's parts where it's so poorly made that it's sharp and he's crunching on it and it's like glass in his mouth and it's making his mouth bleed. And as he devolves... And gets more obsessed with the creature, the candy becomes more of like an addiction almost to him. And he starts to sort of form this sort of impulse where he needs to constantly be eating the candy, which becomes like this sort of symbol of like how he has like, is like 
eternally destroying his own life. Interesting. Yeah, because the way that I sort of read the candy in the movie was like, one, it sort of shows us that this guy is not mature. You know, he's still kind of like childish and he has this very like childish need for control and praise and vindication. And then the other thing is that he's like brutal and impatient and he just... You're supposed to suck on the candy, and you just see him pop a bunch in his mouth and smash him up with his teeth. I think he's, in the book, it is more clear that he is savage, that he is, like, subhuman. There's a point in the book where he's in the Amazon, and they have been in the Amazon for 18 months, and he gets so frantic about seeing this vulture that's flying around this boat because there's all they run out of food they run out of water they're sort of stranded and he's getting obsessed because he cannot find the creature he captures the vulture and he ties it to the boat and he says now you're gonna watch i'm gonna watch you starve to death because you're watching me starve to death and at some point he gets so enraged he kills the vulture jesus and he's just like he becomes almost like a creature himself it's very rhyme of the ancient mariner. So by the time he gets that creature back to the lab and he thinks he's done with it, then the general says, no, you're not done with it. You have to go to the research facility and you have to take care of this creature, which enrages him more because he's dealing sort of with this experience of almost dying in the Amazon. And then also on top of it, like melded to this sort of brutal experience that he has in Korea that he can't talk about because he's, it was a secret mission. Mm-hmm. So he sort of melds those together into this sort of conflict and he immediately starts to have this sort of bad relationship with the creature. And then like even like they have all these different names and he always calls it the creature or the monster, the thing. Like he never mm-hmm. refers to it as like even remotely like it could have any type of humanity. Yeah, and it has a name and his name is Abe. So... So there's basically just like a Werner Herzog movie tacked onto the front of the I think story. So. But it's interesting because in the beginning of the story, when it's just sort of the narrative, the creature is called the Dus Branquia, which is, means like Gil God in like Brazilian. Interesting. And then he starts by calling it the asset. And by the time oh, yeah. he devolves, it becomes the creature and the monster. And then Hofstadter calls him the Devonian. Which is sort of, is, I think, is a more respectful way to talk to. Because I think he's saying, like, he's a fish creature. And he sort of has that. And then Giles calls him creature, but almost like a pet name. Yeah. And then Eliza calls him him. Which I think is the most humanized way that she can call the creature. But I think as Strickland gets more and more enraged with the monster, he devolves. And he does the same thing with the Hofstadter. Because he calls him Hofstadter, then he calls him by his Russian name, and then he ends up calling him, like, you know, like, Ruski or some kind of derogatory term for, like, Russian, and he starts to berate him. I mean, that makes sense. Like, well, first I wanted to say, Devonian is a reference directly to the creature from the Black Lagoon. He's supposed to be a survivor from the Devonian period. Um, The other thing that I wanted to say was that, like, Strickland in this... Like a lot of bad guys in Guillermo del Toro movies, actually. I mean, he represents this sort of, like, white male Christian patriarchy. And I think the the name thing makes sense because it sort of represents the way that one of the big powers that that white male Christian patriarchal hegemony has is that 
it polices identity. And so by ta- the changing and taking away names, that's a, a representation of that power. I think you're right because in this story, and I don't remember in the movie if this was a big deal, Eliza is obsessed with women's shoes. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, she does do it where she wears the pumps to work. But it's very clear in the movie that the reason why she does that is because she feels that the organization that she works for sort of dehumanizes the janitors and the women who work in the janitorial staff by making them wear these uniforms. So she sort of tries to make herself more feminine and feel more like a woman by wearing these shoes. And the creature, at the point that he falls in love with her, when he's in her apartment, he sees all her shoes and he doesn't understand why, if she has such beautiful flippers, why she would cover them with these ugly things. Oh, so does the book delve into his perspective? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. And also, part of it, which is interesting, because in the movie, it's visual. Like, you see the creature looking at her, and they fall in love in the bathroom scene. But in the book, it's his mom. He's talking to himself in his inner monologue, and he talks about her. and And he doesn't understand why... She is not true to herself. He knows what the slits and the and the scars on her neck are for, and he sort of understands that. And he and it sort of it makes you feel that he has humanity, especially the scene where he goes into Giles' house and he ends up eating the cat. Yeah, I was going to ask he, about that. This- he, in his mind, while he's eating the cat, he's thanking the cat for giving the cat his life. Mm-hmm. to sustain him and he talks about like you get to understand that he has a very respectful relationship with nature and being in the city kind of puts him out of his element and he doesn't know how to act so he acts in a way that's primal so he acts like an animal when he's in his own environment he feels more like himself and he's not a base creature it's interesting yeah yeah i mean that's the way it is an elf right he always thanks the cat before he consumes it so maybe the theme of this podcast is not monsters, but cats. <laughs> um, so the other thing, that the uh, two things I wanted to ask about it. Uh, one is the movie is framed with Giles telling the story. And it's becomes clear that it's, it's a little bit romanticized at the least. And it's kind of a fairy tale. And like he doesn't, once they go into the water, he doesn't know what happens. So... It's unclear how much that sort of ending where she gets the gills or whatever is what really happened or is what he has decided happened so that he can give her a happy ending. So I wanted to ask, does the book still have that? Because it doesn't seem like it could if it delves into the creature's perspective and Strickland's home life. So it doesn't doesn't not have the it's not narrated by Giles, is it? No, and it's sort of the narration sort of changes, which happens a lot in 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 the other series that Del Toro writes. The Strain? The Strain. At the end of the story, it's the same thing like the movie. She dives in there, and then there's this sort of um, embrace with the creature, and she loses her shoes. And then at the end of the story, the, the police show up, and there's all these problems, and Strickland gets the same thing. There's no spoilers. There's no different ending. But the story ends with Giles and Zelda together saying, this is what happened. Okay. So then, then they decide that this has brought them together as friends and 
they're going to sort of come up with the story. Mm-hmm. And how does this compare to the other great novel based on a, a book? And another great novel based on a movie, which is the novelization of Gremlins. I don't know. Which reveals that the Gremlins were genetically engineered aliens for some Interesting. reason. I think this is this is not the same as the story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not completely different. So it's kind of like a companion. Like if you like the movie and you thought it was beautiful, that this is also beautiful and it adds sort of like a complex element to the experience of watching the movie. Okay. It's not really going to reveal any kind of fantastic additions or other than the sort of complex philosophical parts of it. I mean, it does reveal that when he was munching on that cat, he wasn't just thinking, yum, yum, I love cat. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned in the begin- preamble that the, the co-writer is a guy who writes young adult fiction mainly, or yes. you said? How do, does it feel? Because I know that Del Toro, in interviews and stuff about The Shape of Water, has called it like his first like adult film. This is his first film that's like he's making as an adult that's like purely about adult life and isn't him reflecting back on his childhood and i was it was interesting when it was like oh a young adult writer helped him with that i I was wondering like does that level of maturity maintain in the book like how does the actual word-to-word writing it's very adult and i think the comp there's a complex component of strickland where it deals sort of with the you know his ptsd of his experiences of being in the amazon and dealing with his experiences of being in the Korean War and his relationship and even sort of his idealization of what it means to be a man and to be a husband and a father. I think those are very adult novel themes. I don't know. I haven't read the young adult work that Krauss has written. I kind of think that it's of the component where it's young adult, meaning there's no sex in it. Ah, I see. Because I think it's very mature and very sophisticated and it does not pander to a younger audience, which, you know, I think is kind of like a mature young adult novel it was interesting because i read and i thought you might find this interesting his next novel is a collaboration with george romano before he passed away george romero romero called the living dead which is supposed to be a novelization of his sort of concept of what he thinks that zombies and the zombie movie was supposed to be interesting i would i i'll probably read that i'm a huge fan of george romero uh, I did not know about that. I think also if you listen to the audio book, which is very well done, they use the soundtrack from the movie. So there's even the third component because the soundtrack is so into, you know, so much a part of the movie experience, which I think was really nice. Yeah, that has one of the best. That score is amazing. That's probably my favorite of that year, of last year, I guess. Yeah, and I think it sort of, it also brings the sort of tie-in of like you're in this, you're in this Del Toro experience. Yeah, yeah. So I would have loved to seen maybe like an illustrated version of this or even a graphic novel. I think that I would... it's so visual. Yeah. It would have been even more interesting. A graphic, I would absolutely love to see a graphic novel interpretation of this story. I think that would work really well. I mean, you'd have to pick a really... I mean, just go through and pick any number of the artists that worked on Sandman. They'd probably be a good choice. Exactly. Charlie Vess, I think, would probably be my top pick. But I don't know how much actual sequential work he does nowadays. Mostly, like, book covers. Yeah. I mean, it, any, I mean, it, it could just be beautiful because the, the movie itself is visually, like, stunning. So I think that's a good choice. I think Del Toro is very smart because he picks a co-writer 
to write these novels that is really good in the genre that he is writing in. So when he wrote The Strain, I read The Strain. I read the trilogy. Mm-hmm. I watched the TV series. So I'm not going to make any excuses about that. But I think The Strain is a great horror trilogy, and mm-hmm. I highly recommend that. And he picked Chuck Hogan to write that, who is a writer who writes medical thrillers. So The Strain has a very strong medical component, and I think that was a good choice. And I think this novel, which has more of a fantasy, his co-writer was a good choice for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then t- tune in for our uh, spinoff podcast, uh, Excessive Strain, where we talk about The Strain. <laughs> and also, I don't know, where Icy uh, Hot Packs while we do it, I guess. Exactly. If you want to listen to the audiobook of The Strain, I have to tell you, it's pretty fantastic. The first one is read by Ron Perlman. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. So if you want Ron Perlman to read you a horrifying bedtime story... Get that. There's nothing in the world I want more than that. I I highly recommend that. I actually read the first novel. When I heard that he had done the audiobook, I listened to his version of the audiobook. And I probably enjoyed it more than the book. Okay. I will not say anything about the TV series. No? Nothing? No. Uh, I've never read any of the books or watched the TV series. I do want to read the books at some point because they sound uh, very much up my alley. I understand that a lot of heads explode into, like, tentacles and worm mouths. There's a lot of del Toro imagery. There's the sort of articulated, externalized spine. Mm -hmm. There's the, like, the face that splits into four parts. There's the long, extended tongue. There's the sort of um, goat-like eye. Sort of the kind of things, like, almost like, like Blade and the Devil's Backbone. They're sort of iconic, like, imagery of what... A monster looks like to del toro sure so. yeah my understanding was always that these were like him wanting to tell a whole story just about the vampires he invented for blade 2 yeah and i think you can tell it's very clear it's not as clear in the shape of water but it's very clear in the strain which parts were del toro telling chuck hogan what to do and which parts were chuck mm. hogan writing the story and he was like chuck put more make it have more bones that we can see yeah and it's like if more heads have to explode and more necks have to be punctured by you know vampire it's an interesting take on vampires mm-hmm. put more bathtubs in it chuck so. somebody needs to hide under blankets i don't know if there's any bathtubs but there is an unnatural obsession with rats Mm-hmm. So, but the bathtub thing shows up in a lot of the bathtub thing is in Pan's Labyrinth, I, th- I yeah. think, right? Yeah, isn't it in um, the movie that he did, The Haunted House? Oh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, he, which he produced, but he didn't direct. Yeah, I believe that also has a bathtub scene. But in Crimson Peak, isn't there a bathtub scene oh, and a yeah. water scene? I mean, there's lots of water stuff in all of his his work, and there's I don't know, remember if there's a bathtub scene, but there's definitely a bathroom scene yes. in Chronos. Yes, definitely. Which, now that I think about it, when he was like, oh, Shape of Water is my first movie about adulthood, Cronus is literally a movie about being an old man. Yeah. I guess it's kind of, arguably, Cronus is a movie about how children see their grandparents. That could be. I think this is definitely the one that tackles adult themes the most. Yeah, Shape yeah. Of Water. I would recommend the book, I think. If you like the movie and you're a Del Toro fan, it sort of enriches the experience. If you are into horror and you want something well-read, actiony, fun, kind of a new take on vampires and the strain is definitely worth it. Okay, cool. And if you like Del Toro and who doesn't, then 
Yeah, he's uh, he's very good. He might be my favorite director. I don't actually know. He's definitely got the highest success rate of directors that are really like. I don't think there's a Del Toro movie that I'm even like. Mm, that one's not that good. Like, I think it says a lot when, if I was gonna name like what's the lesser Del Toro work, it's Pacific Rim, which is still like an awesome movie that I, just, I like a lot. I want to work in this because this sort of it fits in the monster theme and it fits in the del toro theme i would love to see del toro make a movie of hyperion oh yeah i can just imagine what his version of the shrike would look I, like and, and while i was reading that because i was reading that for my hugo award list which i really liked and it was one of the dan simmons versions of different things that i liked i kept thinking about how he i mean he could even do six six movies of different versions of each one of these stories and they would be amazing. But the way that they describe, that Dan Simmons describes the Shriek, I always think of Del Toro. Oh yeah, I totally get that. I think if I was to make a movie based on Hyperion, this would never happen. Nobody would ever let this movie happen because it wouldn't, because it would be an anthology film, was what I would do. I wouldn't get six different directors to each direct the stories and nobody's going to greenlit a like multi-million dollar budget four hour long anthology sci-fi movie it could make a great series oh yeah absolutely with each each director doing a different part um to go back the the book is called hyperion written by dan simmons in 1989 and basically it's the way nate described it to me when he told me about it is that it's canterbury tales in space yes I mean, I think it's it's like intentionally that. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's not me being like, oh, it's kind of like this. I think Dan Simmons sat down to write Space Canterbury Tales. And also he included a bunch of fucked up weird shit because that's just what he likes writing about. I love the fact, the way that he can sort of meld these different genres. And I think you see that like a lot in like Clive Barker's work as well, where he sort of can sort of take a horror element and sort of grafted onto you know high literature or grafted onto sort of this pilgrimage story and i think it's very interesting so we we talked um when we were in earlier in the show when we were talking about a good man is hard to find about your we touched a little bit on your feelings about religion and so how did you feel about the way religion is portrayed in hyperion i thought it was interesting it was like sort of he made almost religion seem obsolete and ancient, mm-hmm. which kind of would like, instead of being relevant in each of their lives, because, you know, it's the priest and the soldier, the poet, the scholar, the detective and the count and the consul and yeah. the hell it's sort of mysterious. Like each person interprets religion in the way that they feel comfortable with. And I think that's sort of a good take on religion where each person can interpret what it means to them but i think also like it's very easy to read the shrike as like a god figure but he's only a god figure to some of them i mean just in general he's like this incredibly or i guess i don't remember which pronouns they used to refer to shrike like is he like a god or is he like the predator is he like an authority figure is he a monster i mean you can't really tell what he is because i think it is exactly like Maybe it's even Dan Simmons' take on religion in, is that, like, 
the God is what you make of him or her or it or whatever thing you want to worship. Because some of the pilgrims who are on this quest aren't on this quest because they're religious. Mm -hmm. They're on this quest because they've been compelled for external reasons to be on this quest. Yeah, but they all have a connection to the... That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think that like... I see the Shrike as a kind of a god figure because they're all connected to it. It, it. They're kind of all called to this pilgrimage. Yeah, and I, but I think that the Shrike is, he is a monster, but there's other components that are just as important, like the whole concept of time and mm-hmm. the fluidity of time and even the fluidity of like humans and their genders and sort of their experiences. I think that's a huge, time is a huge part of this story yeah because of the way people are aging from their time travel and then you have the time tombs and the story ends with them saying okay we got to go to the time tombs and you don't even know why some of the people were some of the pilgrims were called by the shrike because they're not religious and they don't have any sort of association like the detective yeah that's what i'm saying like it it comes for you no matter what like i don't think i'm not saying i think the shrike is a god figure in the way that God, like, in that he represents God as viewed by religion. I'm saying, like, literally. And, like, if God was real the way it would work in the world, like, it, it represents, like, a... Not represents, but it is, like, a higher power to which all these people are connected and are ultimately powerless to sever their connection to. And they end up going on this pilgrimage. Yeah, but it's almost like a mystery. Because yeah. every person who sees the strike sees something different. And there are, like, the priest and the people who, who in history... The tribe worships the shrike. Yeah. And they see him as this benevolent creature that gives them life in a rather disturbing, you know, horror element kind of life that they've been given. And then, you know, the the scholar who really doesn't have any connection to the shrike except he's trying to heal his daughter. Yeah. And so there's all these different components of why they're going to the time tombs and why they're on this pilgrimage. Um. I always, for some, I've always thought of Hyperion as like it's a Doctor Who story where the Doctor never shows up. I like I can see that. I I was waiting the whole time I was reading the novel for someone to like rip off their mask and say it's me, and then I was kind of like, oh yeah, like in the Doctor Who story, everybody tells their story, and at the end, the Doctor shows up and explains what's going on, but that doesn't ever happen. But I think it's exactly like it's sort of like this sort of fantasy story plot point where all these people are in the bar and they're telling their stories and then you kind of expect one of them to say oh it's me and it just doesn't happen it's like a it's like a weird twist on that sort of high fantasy science fiction kind of novel yeah also it's like begging for a concept album based on it it almost was like a concept it's, it's, album. It's structured like a concept album, yes. It's like what Swedish prog rock band is writing a, a you know an album based on this novel? Yeah. I'm sure there is one in the works right now. Well, they, they were supposed to... Sci-Fi was actually supposed to do a miniseries based on it. They announced it in 2015 and then didn't say anything about it until like last year where I think they just, it's just still in development. So we'll see if it ever comes. I mean, I think it was part of that... They had that big push... To do more, I think, kind of high-minded stuff that resulted in them doing the uh, Childhood's End miniseries and stuff like that. And and around that time, they, they bought up the rights to a ton of stuff, like Hyperion, and then all of these 
comics by Jonathan Hickman, which like none of those have come to pass. I think they were they were supposed to do one based on this story called Pax Romana, which I'm a huge fan of, which is about like a paramilitary team traveling back in time to prevent the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, there is that. The soldier story is almost like a time travel story. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. Well, I mean, yes, it's like a time travel story. But I I think it was interesting because as I was reading this, I was also watching The Terror on AMC, which is another Dan Simmons novel that's Mm -hmm. been made for television. And, you know, I had read Drood and I had read The Abomination. Is that the, the one that he had? The Abominable? That's what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I was kind of thinking, like, these are all sort of different types of novels that he had written, but there's always that one sort of Simonish kind of element that goes through each one of these stories. And that's, like, his fleshing out of his characters. Well, I which think... he always does really well. The Terror and this, I think, have more overlap than I think a lot of people give them credit for because they're, they're stories about people traveling, trying to find a thing... And at the same time, there is this impossible to understand, incredibly powerful force that is like around them and affecting them and hounding them throughout. Whereas like the terror, I think, is more openly antagonistic and aggressive towards them than like the Shrike is. But it's still that same sort of thing. That's why I was kind of wondering if maybe like Dan Simmons is actually a Catholic or has a complex sort of relationship with religion because all of the novels that are about like a journey also sort of have this sort of philosophical, ethical, I mean, in the terror, I mean, it's a perfect example. It's like, you know, these people are, you know, are they cannibals? Are they being hunted by a monster or, you know, are the choices that they're making making this monster happen? I don't. I don't know anything about his relation to religion. I know he's definitely interested in like folklore and religion and mythology. Like he's wrote um, Olympus and Ilium, which deal very explicitly with Greek mythology and with the like, idea of like the historical mythological narrative. Like, I mean, it's pretty much Ilium specifically is like about the Iliad, and the protagonist is like. A Homeric scholar um, and those are the first things I had read by him and I read those in high school and I fell in love with him he's he's one of my favorite writers I think, I think Hyperion might be his best work that might be a lazy answer I feel like he has this sort of complexity and he has this sort of fluidity where he can flow into different genres almost like George R. R. Martin where he like people are like oh he's a fantasy writer oh he's a sci-fi writer oh he's a horror writer oh he's a you know, he's, a, you know, he writes literature. It is not, or he writes fan fiction or however you feel about him. But I feel like he takes lots of different types of literature and grafts them into like one sort of very modern style. I guess in my mind, well, one, I think that people outside of the sort of like more specific like SFF community don't really understand like it's it's sff it's science fiction and fantasy like the boundaries between that are very fuzzy and people move back and forth and write things that kind of blend the two a lot all the time and i don't i think almost every writer that writes fantasy writes a little science fiction here and there or and almost every writer that writes science fiction that probably has one or two works unless they're like a serious hardcore hard sci-fi guy probably has one or two works that would be considered 
fantasy. Um, but I tend to think of Dan Simmons as a horror writer who almost never writes horror novels. I could see that. I think George R. R. Martin really, he talks about this a lot. And especially in the beginning, in the preface of his short stories, will talk about simultaneously wanting to preserve this sort of clean genre of science fiction and fantasy and at the same time try to move that genre integrate it into the mainstream literature american literature because a lot of american fantasy and sort of horror and sci-fi is becoming mainstream is becoming bestsellers and it's not just like pulp stories like oh, i want to read a horror novel so i'm going to read stephen king i mean the, these writers are winning awards they're getting recognition they're getting reviews high profile reviews saying that you know you know this is great writing this is not just entertaining like pop literature that you can read that this has some value sure yeah so i mean that's noble i guess i don't care super i don't care a whole lot about whether or not um, something is accepted as actual literature. I tend to have a, a fair amount of ambivalence to open animosity towards like academia, but like whatever. I guess that's a perfectly noble goal. Yeah, I think so. But I really enjoyed that novel, and I thought it was I thought it was one of the better things I had run read from the list. Oh yeah, for so. people who don't know, you've been working through a list of all the Hugo Award winners, right? Yes. And you're almost done. I think you we, we checked earlier and you have like 11 left. I have 11 to go. And right now I'm currently reading Dream Snake by Vonda McIntyre. Yeah, Vonda McIntyre. I like this. And I, did, I purposely do not read anything about the novel until I'm finished reading it. So I was really excited to read this because I thought it would be like an interesting story. And it is a very interesting story. But I think that it also has this sort of very strong 70s feminist vibe that I'm really sort of enjoying. It's super duper 70s. I mean, like the snake venom is very clearly like a psychedelic drug. But I also think it's it's 70s, but it's not like 70s kind of like when we read like the Nightmaster and that was kind of like this sort of 70s androgynous, sexy sci-fi. This is kind of like 70s fantasy i mean it has an element it, there's not a lot of like i think it's pretty wacky kind of like i guess I, I i kind of consider it being in the same sort of school as knight's master and that kind of tanith lee stuff i mean it's maybe not as nakedly horny as <laughs> knight's master is but i don't know there's lots of snakes and there's lots of bath-taking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I'm really enjoying it. So I have to say, and I don't want especially you to get on my back about this, but I have to say after reading, I read Rendezvous with Rama, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed a lot. And then right after that, I read The... The Gods Themselves? The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov. And I have to say that I kind of think that Arthur C. Clarke is a better writer. Uh, yeah, I agree that Arthur C. Clarke is a better writer. I think you get a lot of people... Like, this was definitely a way that when I was getting into science fiction really seriously, when I was like around 13, I, I you constantly have it sort of framed to you as like, there's the big three, the, the holy trinity of classic science fiction, and it's Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, and Robert Heinlein. And I think 
I think those guys' importance is overstated a lot. But, I mean, they definitely are important to, like, a lot of people's conceptions of science fiction. But I think among those three, Arthur C. Clarke is the best writer. Well, no. Robert Heinlein is the best writer of the bunch. But Robert Heinlein is an asshole. And I don't like a lot of the, like, politics of his books. So I tend to gravitate towards Arthur C. Clarke the most. I like Asimov. But I feel like stuff like The Gods Themselves isn't really where he shines as a writer. I wonder if he had won the Hugo based on his body of work. Because obviously it is not his best novel. I don't remember. Can you? I don't really remember what the... Which one is The Gods Themselves? That's the one where the scientist finds this... Is it the para-universe yes, one? Yes, with the, with the electron pump and the titanium that's changed into a... So there's three parts of the novel. There's the first part where a scientist discovers that this metal that he's had for 25 years is starting to mutate and become radioactive. And he realizes this is a power source. So then he creates this thing called the electron pump. True. And then the second part of the book is told from the point of view of the power universe which are these humanoid creatures that are almost like lizards. They get food from the sun, and the sun is diminishing in, in strength and power, so they create this sort of artificial sun. Somehow that's connected to our universe, and there's a transfer of metals which give us the power to run the electron pump, which by proxy fuels this artificial sun that feeds these creatures. And then the third part is... A scientist who's trying to debunk the electron pump who goes to live on the moon. And that's the part that gets me because there's a lot of talk about moon sex and nudity. Mm -hmm. Which kind of makes me think that he Isaac Asimov is getting to be like a horny old man. Or he thinks that 60s and 70s sci-fi has to have a sexy part. So I don't know if he's like well, the moon just trying to be sex. like uh, Phil Pose Farmer and put the sex into science fiction. Or if he really believes that. On the moon, you have less inhibitions and you have sex with each other. And then there's a scientist who's in his 60s who falls in love with a 30-year-old woman and they have a relationship. Yeah. I mean, Isaac Asimov is not... He's not Philip Jose Farmer. And it's not great when he tries to be. Have you ever read The Lovers? No. That's like, I think, Farmer's first published novel. And it's it's very del Toro in that it is about a person who falls in love with a bug alien. <laughs> It's very. It's, I think it's very good. It's, it's, but um, I might be wrong about this, but I feel I've read the gods themselves. I've read most of this stuff, and I feel like my my thought on it is that it was like he had an idea for a short story. He could never figure out what the narrative thrust was, so he just kept writing it until it was as long as a novel, and then he just published it. I feel like to go back to like the three cornerstones of sci-fi like Heinlein is like known for his military fiction sure and like Arthur C. Clarke is known for his sort of high concept space philosophy novels and I think Asimov is known for his sort of very I mean he was a scientist so he's known for his sciencey kind of science yes fiction. absolutely he put the like science part into the science fiction yeah yeah we've talked before about how like you can kind of see in the same way, like, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, how there's a transition in the history of tabletop games where it goes from being the wargamers and math nerds to being, like, um, theater-type nerds and, like, comic book nerds and stuff taking over. And the games become less about, like, 
let's chart the quadratic equation so we can figure out how fast this rock you threw goes and it becomes more about like let's tell a story with emotions and feelings i think you can kind of see in science fiction where it goes from being science fiction where it is fiction written by scientists about science to you know people the new basically the new wave of science fiction happens with jg bollard and ursula Le Guin. it becomes more artistic and literary minded and i think that specifically what happened was like if you look at uh philip k dick's backstory he wanted to just be like a literary novelist and he couldn't get anything published so he started writing science fiction I think Theodore Sturgeon might have been the same way. And I think when science fiction becomes like a refuge for people who have been rejected by the broader establishment of literature, you start to see it get filled with these weirder ideas and less concerned with the actual science. And then you get stuff like Dream Snake. And Asimov is like the, to me, he is like the, the avatar of that earlier, stuffier, but still very good era of science fiction. The sort of um, slide rule science fiction is what I've called it before. I think that that's a good description of it. I think this dream snake, it's kind of, in my mind, it seems more of a fantasy novel. It might even be like a dystopic fiction novel, like an early version of that. Because she mentions part of the sort of technology in the different towns. So she's a traveling healer who uses snakes to heal people. And she goes to different towns and she interacts with the people. In one of the towns, she mentions um, solar panels. And in yeah. another one, she mentions making a, like a, something that's very similar to making a phone call. So it kind of implies that there was a society that was more advanced. Something happened, and now they're back to sort of this nomadic lifestyle, which is almost like what happens in all these dystopian Yeah, there, I mean, there's tons of um, science fiction and fantasy that a lot of the stuff... A lot of the early stuff that blended science fiction and fantasy fell into this kind of like long after the end type thing. You have like Jack Vance with Tales of the Dying Earth, which is like looks like a fantasy story, but turns out to be actually a post-apocalyptic sci-fi story. And, you know, like there's lots of other stuff like that book of the new sun and and parts of uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. It, well, parts of this did remind me of that, this sort of journey that she has, this spiritual journey that she goes on. So, but I thought it was interesting because, I mean, just recently with the whole Octavia Butler, Google, Doodle, and there's... Yeah, I was really huge, surprised that they actually did that. conversation on Twitter about female science fiction writers and, you know, the whole thing with N.K. Jemisin winning two Hugo Awards and on track for winning a third one for her series... People have been saying, oh, women in science fiction. But the people who are saying that don't realize that there's actually a long history of women writing science fiction. And I kind of feel like it's good in a way that now people are realizing that there are women who've written science fiction in the past, and it's good. And But it's also sad that they didn't realize this the whole time. Like when Ursula Le Guin died, people were like, oh, Ursula Le Guin. They started talking about her novels and things like that. She had been writing for years and years and years and was one of the first female science fiction writers. I guess she was one of the first, but that's the thing. Like Going back to that big three of science fiction, that's a very kind of misogynist view of the history of science fiction. And that was the narrative of, of the history of science fiction that we were told for years. Like People will go on and on about Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and even like um 
E.E. Doc Smith and like all these people. And they won't ever mention Lee Brackett, who's amazing because she got written out of the history of two different things. Because not only is Lee Brackett like a legendary science fiction writer who crafted one of the first like science fiction universes and wrote a ton of stories and like astounding stories and all, all these other magazines. She also was a screenwriter and she wrote The Big Sleep in Rio Bravo and she never gets talked about. She doesn't get talked about a lot in the history of filmmaking, and she also doesn't get talked about in the history of science fiction. Well, I mean, to take it back even further, one of the first, one maybe the first science fiction novel is considered Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. And it's like that was written by a woman, mm-hmm. and it was it was also groundbreaking because at the time, a lot of women were writing and using male non diplomas because they didn't want people to know that they were men. They, they were women, so they would use this cover of being men. She published that novel under her own name as a woman, and it was widely accepted. And I think that's sort of... Well, yeah, there's there's also a huge history of um, women writers <laughs> getting success because, like, or writing under ambiguous names. Like, Andre Norton, who's a, another one of my favorite... Uh, sci-fi and fantasy writers she wrote witch world and all this great stuff spaceman's son um her real name is like alice and she published all this stuff under andre norton because it's like it sounds like a dude's name exactly exactly and i think that's the same thing with nk jemison i think that's sort of a way to sort of it might be more of a conscious effort to sort of gender neutralize the author mm-hmm. but i think it's also a defense mechanism against the sort of reactionary readers who feel that only men can write quality science fiction or fantasy well yeah i mean those guys are still around and they still suck i think it's heartening that she has won two hugo awards and i think it sort of shows despite the sort of rancid sort of masculinity that's like infecting the hugo awards well i think they're doing a good job of fighting those guys off like i don't i don't think the the rabid puppies and you know whoever the fuck is still listening to vox day really like has all that much say yeah i I think i mean those books are are so well written i mean i would recommend them to anyone yeah, she's they are great. heartbreaking novels, but they are worth reading. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I, I believe, I don't know. I know Binti won for novella. Did the sequel also win? I don't remember. But those books by Netta Okafor are also really, yes. really good. Yes. And I think that I, there's a television series in the works for that. So, no, oh, it's a different thing that she's a different series. Yeah, I think the television series is based on Who Fears Death. Still, which is also really good. All her stuff's real good. Also, her. Black Panther comic is pretty good, too. Yeah. And I I think that, I mean, to get back to Arthur C. Clarke, I think that, like you said, it sort of does sort of, there's this patriarchy or this sort of male-dominated history of science fiction. that I, And I don't feel like, I feel it's offensive to women writers to say they're breaking that patriarchy. They're breaking that glass ceiling. They've always been there. They just need to be recognized. Well, yeah. Well, I think it's on. important to... I. It sucks a lot now when something happens and people are like, it's, she's the first woman to do this. And it's like, no, actually, p- women have been doing it for. She's the first one where we're actually talking about it. Like, that's the thing that's bugged me recently. Captain Marvel is coming out, which I'm really excited about because I, I love that character. And it's set in the 90s, which I'm super stoked for a superhero movie that's a period piece in the 90s. 
But people were – there was a news story that was going around where people were like, oh, um, this is going to be the first – it's going to be the first superhero movie that is scored by a woman. And it's like, no, it's not. Like Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which has maybe the best score of any superhero movie, was entirely composed by Shirley Walker. But it's like nobody talked about it at the time because it was like the 90s. Also, it was an animated movie. So it already was like kind of working against public recognition and praise. But it's like that stuff happens all the time now. And I think it's good when we celebrate these accomplishments. And I definitely wouldn't... I Like we absolutely should be making a big deal about N.K. Jemisin. But we should also be acknowledging like all of these people that came before that it's that didn't get the recognition. I think what's notable now is... Not that, oh, more women are writing science fiction, which I'm sure is true, like, statistically. But what's notable is, like, they're actually getting some of the praise that they deserve. Yeah, because I don't think these writers are running around saying, I was the first person to do this. They're saying, I'm doing this, and there's a long history of other women that have also done it. And I think that's great. Um, Do you have anything else to say about science fiction and women writers? I mean, I have infinite amounts of things to say about both those topics probably but i don't have anything pertinent to say right now about either of them okay well i want to do i want to end this podcast by making a recommendation for a book of short stories that i think is kind of relevant to the short stories that we talked about and it has sort of a philadelphia connection which is always great so the book is called her body and other parties by carmen maria Mikado. it was published in 2017 she was a National Book Award finalist, and she's also a Lombardo Award winner. She's a Latino who writes about her experiences as a Latino and a lesbian and her experiences with the world. And her books, her stories have this sort of component of fantasy, almost like magical realism, which is kind of prevalent in the work that she does. She's from Philadelphia, and she actually teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, so she has a connection to sort of Philadelphia and it's reflected in her stories. There's a Philadelphia element in all of her stories. We're so, from Philadelphia, in case people don't know that. <laughs> we're from Philadelphia. We're recording in Philadelphia right now. And I, myself, have great Philadelphia pride. So I, I'm very excited when I see Philadelphia writers or artwork or different things that reflect the sort of life of living in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's the greatest city in the world. Whatever city you're in right now, if it's not Philadelphia, I'm sorry, but it sucks. So take a look at this nom- uh, this book with these short stories. They're um, creepy and they're beautiful. They're not disturbing. So I'm recommending something to you not that's disturbing. not disturbing. But well written. Great point of view. A really fantastic up and coming writer. Which I think everyone will enjoy. Now that we're doing this new version of the podcast where we do the short stories. I think I'm going to try and... I'm going to try and keep track of how many stories we go before you pick one that doesn't have a brutal murder in it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so one, one, two so far. Two so far that are centered around a brutal murder. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I don't, I think it's going to be a while unless you consciously try to pick one. That's like, oh, this doesn't have a murder. I will try to pick one that doesn't have a murder. But no, it will yeah, not be John. Don't hamstring yourself. I'm not trying to call you out. I'm just saying, I know what, what kind of stuff you like. It's not going to be this John Cheever story. Spoiler alert. So, if you in have the, a complicated relationship with your siblings, you will enjoy this story. Yeah. And if you like magic guns, you'll like my story probably. So, interesting. 
I'm trying to not pick too many sci-fi stories for my thing. Because, like, the bulk of the short fiction that I've read is science fiction. Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to say about Isaac Asimov. <laughs> this is unnecessary. We might cut this cut this out, too. But um, I think that his strength is, is short fiction. I think so. I, well, th- like, I would agree with that. Also, though, did, did you read Caves of Steel? No. You should read Caves of Steel. Because I think if you're going to like any Asimov story, it's that one. Which is a buddy cop story about a man and a robot. But it's also like a class buddy cop story where the space people are like a higher class who look down on the, the people who were born on Earth. And they send the robot to work with the hard-boiled Earth detective to solve the murder mystery. Well, you had me at hard-boiled Earth detective. So I will definitely look for that. Yeah, it's so. very good. One of, well, probably... Hmm, no, I'm not, not going to say that. But one of my favorite sci-fi detective stories. Definitely not my favorite. My favorite might be Sundiver? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Cool. Are we done? Do we have anything else I to talk so. about? No, I think that's it. I think that's quite enough for one yeah, yeah. full episode. Uh, so we'll be back in the next episode. Just a reminder again, we're going to talk about... Shit, I forgot the name of your story already. <laughs> Goodbye, Brother. Goodbye, by Brother. Cheever. By John Cheever. And I have also forgotten the name of my story. This is bad. Well, this is check, a bad sign-off. Check the show notes. Cut Flower, that Needle, Mercy, Chain by Yoon Holly. That's mine. And if it's not Flower, Mercy, Needle, Chain, it's some combination of those words in some order. Well, we're going to be talking about short stories. We're going to be talking about science fiction novels. And we're probably going to be talking about... Although I did not mention him one time in this entire podcast. Stephen King? Yes. Oh, no, yeah. We used to talk about Stephen King a lot in the in the older uh, prehistoric version of this podcast. Okay. We might talk about him again. Who's to say? Uh, all right. We still don't have a sign-off, do we? That's our thing. No sign-off. No sign-off. We were saying, spoiler alert, stay tuned, but that doesn't make any sense. But I still like it. So, spoiler alert, stay tuned.